Mountain View Sunnyside. As has been said, my name is Tony Peterson. Thank you so much, everyone, for the very kind uh, introduction. Uh, and it's really a privilege for me to be here this morning um, to preach the Word of God for you. If you, you may know, but my wife and I, Roxana, recently spent a couple years uh, serving in a local church in a small city in north-central Germany called Pina. And it was really an amazing time, an amazing experience. People were saved, people were baptized. The church, where we served and grew, God moved in so many incredible ways. But I think the most, um, the best thing that we accomplished while we were there is coming home with a little baby, Charlotte Elizabeth. And you'll see our little family here on the screen. She's the best. There's no denying it. There's no beating it. She just is. Um, it's so good. And now I have the, the great blessing and opportunity to be working at Mountain View again as the pastor of discipleship at main campus. So I'm looking forward to seeing many of you a little bit more than I did while I was in Germany. So for the last few weeks, we've been going through this series on authentic disciples, or authentic Christianity, excuse me, authentic Christianity, looking at it through the small book at the, toward the end of the Bible called First Thessalonians. It's actually written as a letter by this guy named the Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders, to a group of Christians in the city called Thessalonica, which is actually still a city today. You can go visit it in Greece if you wanted to. And this letter, this book, as you read through it, you'll notice is very practical. It's got a lot to say to us today, especially the passage we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to uh, pull them out, and we'll turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and read from verses 1 to 12. I encourage you to make that a habit, uh, a part of your Sunday routine, to bring your Bible with you to church. It's a good thing. Uh, here at Mountain View and Mountain View Sunnyside, we use the New Living Translation, but really any translation of the Bible is a wonderful thing. So, from verse 1 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God, as we have taught you. You live this way already, and we encourage you to do so even more. For you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a Christian brother in this matter by violating his wife, for the Lord avenges all such sins, as we have solemnly warned you before. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. But we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other, for God himself has taught you to love one another. Indeed, you already show your love for all the believers throughout Macedonia. Even so, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you, to love them even more. Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands just as we instructed you before. Then people who are not Christians will respect the way you live and you will not need to depend on others. Ever since I was a kid, people would always tell me, you are just like your father. And it was, part of it had to do with appearances. We looked alike, and people would always say that, and I'd say, well, I am his son. That's kind of how it works. Genetic, you know, I'm going to look like him. 
Um, even today, I'll make facial expressions by accident, and my wife, Roxanne, will say, stop making your dad's face. I'm sorry. It just happened that way. But it goes beyond appearances. In many ways, I am like him. Um, part of that is because sometimes I would purposefully model myself on him, like the time in elementary school when I began writing in all caps, because that's how he wrote, and that's how I still write today. Sometimes it was uh, through him purposefully teaching me things and transferring interests to me, like our love for playing stratomatic baseball, a baseball board game, or for collecting baseball, basketball, football cards. Pretty much loving all, all things sports in general, something my dad taught me. But in many ways, I became like him, not only through myself purposefully modeling myself on him or him purposefully teaching me something, but almost by accident, just by living with him and observing him, seeing, for example, how he treated all people with respect, or how he loved my mom and my siblings, or how he worked to be the best he could possibly be as a jo- at his job as a coach and a teacher, just by living with him for days, weeks, months, years, and observing him and watching him and being with him, I started to become like him. And really, that's what discipleship is. I think we all have an example that can come to our minds of maybe a parent, a teacher, a coach, a mentor, somebody who, after we've spent a lot of time with them, we start to actually become like them. And that's what happens when we're disciples of Christ. We spend time with God, and we begin to become more like him. That's ultimately the goal of discipleship, to become more like Jesus. And that's a lofty goal. Jesus was perfect. We probably already sinned this morning on the way to church. Um, But the Bible tells us if you are a Christian, you are already in the process of becoming like Christ. Paul puts it this way in another letter called 2 Corinthians. So all of us who have had that veil removed, that is all of us who have become a Christian or have become a disciple of Christ, all of us can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. When you become a Christian, when you become a disciple of Christ, no matter where you're at in your walk with God, you begin to become more and more like him. You become transformed into his glorious image. And the good news is that none of this happens on our own. It doesn't happen through our own effort, our own initiative, our own desire. It happens through the unmerited, the free, wonderful grace of Jesus Christ on the cross, dying for us so that we might live, so that we might have eternal life, so that we might become more like him. That is discipleship, being in relationship with him and becoming like him. So what does that have to do with this passage? I think it has everything to do with this passage. This doesn't have everything that a disciple of Christ would do, this passage, but it is a kind of roadmap with a set of practical principles that if we do these things, we will become good disciples of Christ. We will become authentic disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's where we're heading today. So the first point is an authentic disciple of Christ lives to please God, not him or herself. And that's what Paul says in verse 1. Live in a way that pleases God. That's, that's our command. And maybe we look at that and we say, yeah, didn't, 
Didn't we already know that? Isn't that obvious? Do we really need to be told that as Christians we're supposed to live in a way that pleases God? Kind of seems self-explanatory. And I think, yes, we need to be told that every single day. Live in a way that pleases God. Live in a way that pleases God. Because if we look around, we'll see all kinds of people. Many Christians live not for God, but living for themselves. And even, I think, if we look in our own hearts, in our own souls, in our own lives, we would see that much of the time we live not for God, but for ourselves. C.S. Lewis, famous writer and Christian apologist from the 20th century, wrote Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity. It's a bunch of good stuff. You should read him. He struggled with this very same issue. He put it this way, and I'm going to quote him at length. It's on the screen to help you follow along. It, it really helps illustrate this. He writes, During my afternoon meditations, which I at least attempt quite regularly now, I found out ludicrous and terrible things about my own character. This is C.S. Lewis, spiritual giant, talking about ludicrous and terrible things in his own character. So that should give us pause a little bit. Sitting by, watching the rising thoughts to break their necks as they pop out, break the necks of the bad thoughts, one learns to know the sort of thoughts that do come. And will you believe it? One out of every three is a thought of self-admiration. When everything else fails, having had its neck broken, up comes the thought, what an admirable fellow I am to have broken their necks. I catch myself posturing before the mirror, so to speak, all day long. I pretend I pretend I'm carefully thinking out what to say to the next pupil, he or the teacher, for his good, of course, and then suddenly realize I'm really thinking how frightfully clever I'm going to be and how he will admire me. And then when you force yourself to stop it, you admire yourself for doing that. It's like fighting the Hydra. There seems to be no end to it, depth under depth of self-love and self-admiration. This is a constant struggle for all of us. We all struggle with this thing of pride, of self-righteousness, self-love, self-admiration, however you want to put it. We all have these thoughts come to our heads, and even when we're good and we try to push these thoughts down and we finally succeed in crushing our pride, up comes the pat on the back for ourselves. Good job for doing that. Good job for not being proud. And we become proud all over again. It's a vicious, vicious cycle. The writer George MacDonald, who was actually, he actually inspired C.S. Lewis in many ways, he wrote that the one principle of hell is that I am my own. I live for myself. We could say that is the natural principle of our own hearts. I am my own. I live for myself. How do we overcome this? How do we overcome this, this awful feeling of pride and self-righteousness that wells up so easily within us? It's not through effort. It's not through meditation. It's not through doing enough good things. The only way we can overcome this is by declaring, I am not my own. Not my own. That I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my Savior Jesus Christ. It's through salvation. It's through trusting in Christ. Trusting everything in Christ. And that is the beginning discipleship. I am not my own. I belong to God. And we go on from there as disciples of Christ. The second point is an authentic disciple of Christ follows God's will, including God's command for sexual purity instead of the whims of contemporary culture. 
Christian sexual ethic has taken a beating uh, recently in our culture. The Christian Orthodox historic view of, of marriage is, has been rejected by our culture. Uh, it's now encouraged for someone to have sex before they're married. It's, it's encouraged. It's a good thing to do. And even many experts say uh, monogamy, having one sexual partner, you know what, that's unnatural. It's far more natural to have multiple sexual partners. Our best guess is that one in five men and women will commit adultery in their lives. And this, is, this next is almost amazing. It's 70% of men and even one out of every three women watch pornography regularly. And porn sites actually get more views than the websites for Twitter, Netflix, and Amazon combined. It's a problem. Christian sexual ethic has been rejected by our culture. And our culture is saturated with sex. How could this passage on stay away from sexual sin, yeah, maybe it was easier in Paul's time. It was more natural. Now it's, maybe it's too strict, too hard. As sex-saturated as our culture is, the culture in which Paul was writing was at least as saturated with sex. They had the same kind of ideas. You could have sex with whomever you want. It doesn't matter. It's, they thought it was an unreasonable demand on a person to stay a virgin. It doesn't make any sense. Have sex with whomever you want. It doesn't matter if you're married to the person or not. You can do what you want. For a variety of reasons that we don't need to get into, there were many more men than women in this society. So that led to people getting out their sexual urges um, in homosexual acts. And many of the relationships were between, uh, not maybe not most, probably not most, but some were between adult men and, and boys, relationships that we would say consider pedophilic. Paul's culture of the time was at least as saturated with sex as ours. The Christian sexual ethic has always been difficult to follow, yet has it, it has always been true and good for humanity. So what's Paul calling us to do? Stay away from sexual sin. Why? He has three reasons. In verse 6, he says, well, it's, it's a serious sin. It's a serious thing. In fact, God avenges all such sins. He avenges it. It's a big deal. It's no small matter. In verse 7, he says that God has called us to be sexually pure. No, no other man or woman has called us to be sexually pure. No institution. It is God, the creator of all things, has called us to do this. So, better listen up. And in verse 8, he says, we have the Holy Spirit who makes us holy. Therefore, what excuse do we have to not live holy lives if we have the Holy Spirit? I think it's something that he implies in verse 6 is very powerful for us in our culture today. Note what he says here. He says, never harm or cheat a Christian brother in this matter. Never harm or cheat a Christian brother in this matter. Sexual sin is not a merely individual sin. Something that we only do to ourselves, our bodies, our souls, our hearts. All sexual sin, whatever it may be, is always a sin against another person. It always, in fact, does harm or damage to another person. Another person whom God created as his masterpiece, it says in Ephesians 2.10. Another person who is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It always does damage to another person. If you're uh, sleeping with somebody outside of marriage, 
we're robbing that person of the opportunity to be pure before God. If we're watching pornography, we're robbing that person of their dignity before God. Even if we merely lust after someone, that changes the way we view that person unfairly, and they've done nothing wrong. Of course, sex has just, it's multifaceted, there's complicated, there's keep on both sides, but at bottom, it's always a sin against God, and it's always a sin against someone else. It's not merely an individual thing. And yet God calls us to stay pure, to be holy. How do we do that? There are many practical ways. Uh, one is, well, if you're dealing with pornography as a temptation, for example, set up guardrails around your use of the computer or the smartphone. Delete apps, install website blockers. If you're tempted to stray in your marriage, don't go to places where there are people you're attracted to without your husband or your wife. The same for talking on the phone or texting. But what I think is maybe the best and most practical thing I could tell you in dealing with any sexual sin, with really any sin in general, is to confess it. To confess your sin. Every single Sunday, we have prayer ushers on the sides here willing to pray for you in any in any way possible, if you have a need, if you have a praise, if you have anything you want to pray about. And they're great people. I know most of them, and they're all very kind, awesome, amazing people. I encourage you to come and confess your sin and receive the plentiful, awesome forgiveness, grace of God. James 5.16 says this, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. When you confess your sins, when you repent from them, you are healed. You receive healing, you receive forgiveness, freedom. So I encourage you, next opportunity you get, if you're struggling with sexual sin, but really any sin, come forward and confess it to a Christian brother or sister. Bless you. Confess it, and you will receive healing. And I promise it won't be weird, because you know what? We all sin. We all should be going forward to confess. It's not a weird thing to get there. Another way Another practical suggestion is this, simply to love. Paul says this in Romans 13. For the commandments say you must not commit adultery, you must not commit sexual sin. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. For love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirement of God's law. Simply put, we love. Love doesn't do wrong against someone else by committing a sexual sin against them. We love. Instead, And that's the next point. An authentic disciple of Christ practices sacrificial love as God taught him or her. I think it's fitting that Paul's beautiful passage here on love comes right after his exhortation to live out the Christian sexual ethic. I think we ask many people in our society, in our culture today, about those of us who, who hold to the Christian sexual ethic or the Christian view of marriage they would say that we are bigoted, prejudiced, and anti-gay. And so that makes it so much more important for us as we do cling to this important truth, because God's truth is powerful, it's, it's true, it's for human flourishing. As we cling to good doctrine, if it's not accompanied by love, if it's not moved by love, it's frankly unbiblical. It must always go hand in hand with love, with sacrificial love, to be willing to die for another, to give of yourself for another. And this goes for all aspects of the Christian life, not only for sex. 
to be a Christian is in many ways to be a lover, one who loves other people. And that's what an authentic disciple of Christ does, loves sacrificially as God taught him or her. So how does God teach us to love? In many ways, he tells us in the Bible. In Leviticus 19, God says, love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, love your enemies even. And in John 15, Christ says, greater love has no man than this, than that he laid down his life for his friends. God told us how to love. But even more than that, God showed us how to love. Through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, he's the example. He's the embodiment of what love is, giving of all of himself, coming to serve and not to be served. That is how we love. This 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. My daughter Charlotte, beautiful, was born on January 31st in Hildesheim, Germany. And uh, boy, it's, it's just the best thing. Nothing, nothing beats being a father. And she's, she's been the best baby from day one. It's so good. One of the cutest things uh, in the weeks after she was born was I'd be holding her and she'd be sleeping. And then all of a sudden, as she was sleeping, almost involuntarily, she would start to smile. There's a picture right here of her just doing that while she's sleeping. Just, I mean, come on, that's cute. There are other times when she'd be awake and she'd be give me other faces like this one. Oh, sorry. The one before that one where she's, yeah, that one. I don't know what I did to make her so unhappy, but um, there you go. Um, But still, I mean, even that face is cute. So we're smiling at her all the time, just constantly looking at her, smiling, expressing our love for her weeks and weeks of this and finally after smiling at her and loving her for so so often for so many days uh, Roxana was given her a bath and as you saw she smiled in return her first real child a beautiful smile an awake smile her love for us in the form of a smile was awakened by us loving her first by she was loved into loving by us in a sense she loves us because we first loved her and that is a human but beautiful picture of something that's also a divine reality just as charlotte's love for us was awakened by our smiles so is our love awakened by our heavenly father's love and smiles for us in the form of jesus christ who came and died on a cross so that we might live, so that we might have eternal life, so that we might be free from sin, so that we might spend eternity with him where there will be no sorrows, no crying, no pain, no death. This is what Christ did for us. This is the smile of God toward us that awakened love in us. This is how God showed us to love. He loved us first. That's why we love. We don't love to collect friends, to collect accolades, to for any other reason but out of sheer gratitude for him who loved us first and died for our sins. That's why we love. We love because he first loved us. And I'd like to end with this last point. An authentic disciple of Christ is humble. 
to humble. Now, I, in many ways, this last paragraph is a really weird paragraph. Uh, the, the whole section goes, okay, so live in a way that pleases God, okay? Abstain, stay away from all sexual sin, got it. Love even more, yes. Make it your goal to live a quiet life. Uh, that kind of like, where it doesn't actually end in a crescendo, a big, you know, yeah, let's go out and win for the team. Doesn't actually end like that. So what is Paul? Try, what is he doing here? What's he trying to say? I think the key is in this the first few words. This phrase, "Make it your goal." Make it your goal to live a quiet life. So this, the word that that we translate, "Make it your goal," actually in this time meant the exact opposite of living a quiet life. Somebody would use this word to 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 then build up their own honor to puff themselves up to make their own names great. So when Paul says this, he's actually flipping this entire concept on its head. He says, make it your goal, make it your ambition. Aspire, not to make your name great. Aspire, make it your goal to be humble, to be peacemakers, to work hard with your hands. And in so doing, making the name of the Lord great. So as you can see, Paul actually comes full circle. He ends where he began. Humility. Living in a way that pleases God and living in humility, they're both ways of counteracting, of working against our original sin, the sin that lies behind all of our other sins, the sin that was present in Genesis 3, where Satan tempted Adam and Eve by saying, live for yourself and you will be like God. You will be like God. Sin, the sin of pride, of self-righteousness, that's our constant temptation. That's our constant temptation. And instead, Paul says, don't, don't live for yourself. Live for God. Live for God. Don't say, I am my own. Instead, declare your allegiance to God. Say, I am not my own. I belong to God. And don't accept the false promises of Satan, live for yourself and you will be like God. Instead, receive the promises of Jesus Christ. Turn to the Lord and you will become more and more like him as you are changed into his glorious image. I invite us to pray. Father, I thank you that you loved us. You loved us so much that you sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and die for us, that we might be called your sons and your daughters, that we might have eternal life. And thank you also for sending your Holy Spirit who makes us holy, who makes us more and more like you. So with everyone's heads bowed and eyes closed, I, I'd like to give an invitation for people to declare for the very first time, I am not my own, but I belong to God. It could be the best thing you could ever do to receive salvation, the forgiveness of sins, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. This is what God offers all of us. So if you're here and you've never done that before, but you'd like to, you feel God tugging on your heartstrings. You've been living for yourself all these years, but you want to live for something greater, someone greater. The God who came to die for you. 
I'd like to invite you, if you haven't done that before, to simply raise your hand. And after the service, someone from our team would love, love to pray with you in doing that. If there's, is there anybody like that here this morning? You want to declare today that I belong to God. I want to receive his free gift of salvation. Is there anybody like that? If you just raise your hand. For the rest of us, Father, help us to become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. Help us, one, to, to confess our sins, to receive healing, to receive freedom, to receive forgiveness. Help us to do that. Help us to not merely seek to do what Jesus did, but help us to remember what Jesus did our motivation to love that you died on a cross for us help us to remember that Lord and Lord help all of us whether we've known you all our lives or whether we've known you just in the last little bit all of us to declare I am not my own every single day I am not my own I do not live for myself I do not seek my own pride and my own to make my own name great Lord I belong to Help us to do these things, Lord, by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.